This is the Proceeds Initiative. Welcome. I am Chris Kent, and joining me is Cole Potus. Hello, Mr. Potus. Hello, sir. Today, we're also joined by a truly captivating guest, Mr. J.V. Hilliard, an epic fantasy and dark fantasy writer, the author of the captivating Warminster Saga, and the mastermind behind a groundbreaking melded reality video game based on the series. Welcome, J.V. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's my pleasure, Jess. Thanks very much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, so let's kind of get right into it, um, right into the enchanting realm of the Warminster Saga. Do you have any insights um, for our listeners about what inspired you for this series and and, and kind of what you know brought it up? And then we can kind of go into more of your, your background from there. Yeah, sure. I've always been a fan of science fiction and fantasy, in particular fantasy. And as I was growing up, I was a longtime role player at Dungeons & Dragons, many other role-playing games. Uh, even tried my hand out at, at uh, live action role playing at certain points. Uh, it was always something in the back of my mind that I like to do. I was a good storyteller. Uh, I enjoyed the dungeon mastering aspect of it, which is really the person who's setting the story for the players to play through the game. Uh, and so for me, it was it was something that was fun as a child that also stuck with me. There was a lot of, um, I think, very good stories uh, that came from the adventures that we would create in, in the beginning it was with my family as i was growing up and then later with friends in college uh and eventually you know we i still have a group of guys that we play with uh every sunday six to ten so it was something that i thought uh i could memorialize uh into a story uh taking the best of the best over a period of 15 or 20 years of playing the game and uh rolling it into what i thought would be and had become the, the warminster saga and that's really where it was born from. And I, and I think uh, a love of writing and always knowing that I was going to be a writer at some point in my life, uh, you know, really, I, I think, pushed me when COVID happened. Uh, the silver lining in it was I own several businesses that were just entirely closed or very limited in what I can do during that time. And, and I knew I would drive my wife insane if I didn't do something uh, and keep myself busy. I'm a busybody naturally. And so this was that time where I could, you know, pick something off my bucket list. And I, you know, I thought it was going to be one novel and it turned out to be four uh, and then, you know, more to come. So that's sort of the background of, of where the, the ideas of the story came from and, and how I got there. Awesome. Yeah. I, I love to hear that, you know, it's not just something you decided to do in the meaning that you can clearly trace your interest in it and how it led from the things that you did into actually memorializing, as you said, that, that kind of realm and that story and moving on from there. And so I guess I'm curious, um, is there like, you, you said that you'd never, how did you become an author? Let's talk a little bit more about your authorship journey. What kind of drove you to becoming that and, and clearly, uh, uh pretty good at it, uh, as you are now. So, yeah. That's not an easy well, I've, I've always been a good writer. Mm. Uh, it's something I, I picked up when I was very young. Uh, my uncle was paralyzed in the war, and my mother was his nurse when he came home. That was his, obviously his sister. And, um, you know, we lived with him for a number of years as he was doing his recovery. And he was a quadriplegic. And, as, and part of his new life, he was very limited in what he could do. And, and some of the things that he could do were writing. Uh, and so back in the day, you know, they fashioned a, you, you know, a tool that he can use to type on a typewriter. And uh, that was a form of escapism for him. So he wrote primarily like, you know, short stories in Pulp Fiction that would be published in magazines and such. But for the most part, you know, I emulated him. He was like a second father to me. And 
you know, he was a writer. So I wanted to be a writer. Right. So, uh, you know, and so I started early, you know, trying to kind of follow in his footsteps and do what he was doing. Uh, and the other part of what came from his condition was my Dungeons and Dragons experience. Right. So that was another form of escapism for him. And he was my first dungeon master. And I got a chance to play the game for the first time under him sort of leading us. And I was 10 years old at the time. And this was right around the time I was in fourth grade and my, um, my English teacher had gone out on a medical sabbatical. And for the last month of the, of the year, uh, somehow, some way, my permanent sub uh, teacher got permission from the principal to read us uh, Lord of the Rings and uh, The Hobbit. And it was on. Like after that, I was I, I, not only was I playing Dungeons and Dragons, I was also living in it at my uh, my school classes. And coupled with my pension for writing, it, I, I knew that one day I would, I would pen a you know, fantasy adventure novel. And, and so it started really young. And then you grow up, go to college, um, life takes over, you get married, family, house, you know, you got to make money somewhere and authoring is not the place to do it, you know, especially in the beginning when you're just building your readership. Uh, but, you know, professionally, I did that as, as a, you know, an entrepreneur uh, started at, in the defense industry. I did a lot of work uh, as a defense lobbyist in D.C., working with technology companies and introducing them to the to the Hill and to the Pentagon. And it was nonfiction. You know, I was writing prose every day, but it was position papers or it was, you know, grants or it was, you know, policy, you know, things or even speeches uh, that I would do. So for me, the, the practice of writing was habitual. The practice of writing was daily. And so when all of that shut down, uh, it was an easy transition for me. It was an outlet. It was something I could still do and something I've always wanted to do. Uh, and so that's how I became a writer. I stepped over from the nonfiction side and had that opportunity during the uh, uh, the, the pandemic to really take advantage and, and learn how to write fiction. And luckily, I, I'm blessed with a number of friends to help me get there. I mean, I have an associate professor friend of mine who read my first manuscript and encouraged me. She's like, look, this is publishable. You just need to learn how to pace it a little better, or you've got to figure out how to write dialogue, which I hadn't done ever. You know? So there's like little things like that that you do and you, you know, learn on the fly. And then when I found the right development editor, you know, he introduced me to my publisher and it went from one book to a series and the series got expanded from three books to four. And now we're looking at a series beyond that and some spinoffs from it. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier in the video game and, and now perhaps a graphic novel. So Things are progressing really well. I, I think the stories have been uh, well received, and I, I get a lot of nice feedback when I'm on the road signing books at conventions and, and bookstores and stuff. Yeah, very cool. And it sounds like you know you had the passion for the fantasy aspect, and you also had the skill of the writing. You were able to put those two things together to get you where you are now. And uh, you know, I'm curious, as much as you are willing to to say, what does kind of your your writing routine look like? So for me, it's a daily thing. You know, I, I look at it as perhaps going to the gym, right? Like it, the day that you miss, you feel fat. <laughs> you, you feel like you cheated somewhere. And so for me, for me to keep pace, especially writing epic fantasy, uh, which is not just epic in scope, it's also happens to be, you know, very thick uh, novels as you write. Uh, in order to keep pace with that, you, you kind of have to write every day. And it doesn't have to be, you know, three chapters, right? It could be outlining a future project or even outlining a chapter. Just something that keeps you in the moment, keeps you in the world that you've built. Um, and so that's that's part one of it. Part two of it is I'm by nature a planner. 
you know, so for me, I, you know, part of my writing process begins and ends with engineering the story from beginning to end. Uh, and I typically do it from the end. Like I see the end of the story, I'll write that first, then I'll go back and write the beginning and then fill in the middle. It's an odd sort of process, but I'm not the kind of writer that can just sit down and start writing. I have to write in a direction. I have to know where I'm going in order to to write a story. So for me, that habit allows me to uh, write and then keep track of everything uh, to make sure that it it does get embedded in the story. And and I cheat. Like I have a big whiteboard in my office and, you know, I erase things as they go into the novel to make sure that they're in there. If there's anything left on the board, I know I missed something. And that way uh, I don't miss those things. And so those disciplines, I think, have helped me uh, you know, keep pace uh, for, uh, you know, uh, ever more demanding um, readership. Uh, and what I mean by that is the industry has changed in recent years, in the last uh, generation or so. Um, when I was growing up, if an author released two books in a year, that was a fast pace. Uh, but, you know, I think from elder millennials on back, there's a on-demand kind of thing that happens. And so they expect rap- more rapid release uh, of novels because they just don't want to wait around for them, right? They can Netflix and binge watch stuff over the weekend and they'll lose. Um, and I think that the industry is adjusted to this. There's, there's a sense that they want it faster. And so they, they, you know, that's hard to do when you're writing epic fantasy, no matter what you do, there's three months of writing a manuscript and then three months of editing in front of you. And unless you've done them all ahead of time and then release them once every other month, you're you're just plowing along once every six months like i have been uh you know launching the novels and so i think that level of discipline and planning have helped me as an author uh get to uh a comfort zone in making sure that i'm meeting my deadlines that my publisher's happy my editors are happy and uh therefore my readership is happy they're getting something in in a hurried but professional pace uh in a genre that's really tough to write more quickly Absolutely. And it, it sounds like that discipline and that structure helps you to get the content out, make sure the content is good. And then also I, I, I can imagine it, like you said, it takes a long time because when you're writing, especially this type of, of um, story, it's it's got to be well thought out and you really have to do that imaginative uh, kind of world building and really flesh it out. And so speaking of that, can you share any insights you have into creating rich and immersive settings, characters, and other kinds of things like you did in the Warminster series? Yeah, sure. I mean, part of it is just having the right kind of imagination for it. And I think I've taken inspiration from some of the greats. Uh, you know, Tolkien is the granddaddy of them all. And, you know, it's hard not to write in fantasy while um, understanding that all fantasy was born from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings in many respects. And so I try to pay homage to that while also creating something that is not only new, but exciting and that people can find themselves into. And, and so you have to create your own world. So, you know, like George Martin with Lord of the or with the Game of Thrones couldn't use Middle Earth. So he created Westeros and Essos or, you know, you know, Terry Brooks couldn't write there. So he created Shannara. Right. And and so my version of that is is the realm of Warminster. And, and to that, I mean, you can use some tropes. Like there's humans in my book and there are different kinds of elves that you'll find that are typical in um you know in all sorts of fantasy whether it's gameplay or you know uh, tv shows or movies uh you'll see that kind of stuff but then there are creatures and monsters that you'll find that are unique and some of those um you know unique creatures that i call cryptids 
generically, uh, I've taken inspiration from true life mythos. So you'll find uh, one of the the villains in my novel is the the antlered man, who's sort of this you know you know magically transformed creature that's under the control of one of the you know the big bad evil guys in the novel. Um, and that came directly out of like the Master of the Hunt, which was a North myth, a Norse Nordic myth. Ugh, that's a lot to say. Um, or, you know, I use a version of the Skinwalker, which was a Native American mythos um, to inspire my doppelganger, my this um, this creature that was called a skin stealer in my novels, which is uh, a way instead of, you know, transforming and like you see like a werewolf that transmutes. This is something that the only way the creature is able to do it is to do it by eating you from the inside out, which gives it sort of a really dark fantasy kind of aspect to it, almost gothic uh, or almost Lovecraft in a way. But it's something that people haven't seen before. Uh, they've, they've seen shapeshifters. This isn't a shapeshifter as much as it's a shape eater. Uh, and I think that, that that's pretty cool, too. So I, I find inspiration from you know a lot of the greats and some of those that are might be obscure authors that you read. Uh, and you're like, oh, that's a good idea. But what if I did this to it, you know, and spin that kind of stuff, um, you know, and, you know, I, you know, I really enjoy creating the world. And and I think that that's just goes back to my nature of being a planner. Like there are natural questions you have to ask yourself is like, what color is the sky or how many moons do you have? Or, you know, in, in other cases, it's simple stuff where it's like, how do they spend money? You know, do they have gold pieces or what are they called? They can't call them gold pieces. That's boring. So you have to come up with your own terminology and where is that made and how is it spent? And, you know, you know, do you have a hierarchy uh, system? Is there a mercantile system? Uh, you know, how, what magic systems do they employ and things like that? And when you're done creating it, it's almost like you've created your own gaming system alongside the world. And then you implement that part of it. And you stay true to your own rules which makes it kind of fun, right? So like fantasy, there are no rules, but you create enough rules to, for people to be able to suspend disbelief. And they're like, all right, I get it. They're on a boat. So a boat exists here or there's gravity. I get it. I get it. You know, and stuff like that. And that helps uh, the, the readers along too, while also making your realm very unique and hopefully people enjoying it enough to buy the, the next book and the next and the next. Yeah. And I can imagine the more questions you ask yourself about the world that you're creating, the more immersive and diverse it's going to be. And like you said, there aren't rules, but you're creating those rules that things can exist in, but maybe give yourself a little bit of freedom to bend those rules or change them to add to the story and add to what's going on. And, and again, it seems at least from what I understand that without that discipline and structure that you've written into your writing process, that would be a long drawn out and difficult thing to do. But it's also cool because you're allowing yourself the creativity to, to play off of things that you uh, either create yourself come up with, but it also sounds like you, you draw a lot from reality or inspired from certain ideas that you then can turn into your own. And that's, that's really cool too, because you know, we can sit sit down and have this conversation that, you know, I didn't just completely imagine this thing. It's actually based off of this thing, this thing, but I took some liberty to change it. And to me, that's really interesting because, you know, you can tie it back into something else and then you can see the way that you applied your creativity to it, which is, which is really cool. Yeah. You know, I, you have to be inspired. I think all authors in many, I'm not going to say in many respects, all authors are good observers. Right. So oftentimes we get criticized for being introverts. Uh, and a lot of us are. I, I happen not to not be one, <laughs> but a, a lot of authors would 
wouldn't dare to come on this show. It's something that they don't do to promote their own stuff. They they like to sit around and just watch things. Uh, and when you watch things, there someone has a tick, someone has a habit, someone has their hair done a certain way, or something that you notice about them that's unique that you eventually employ in your writing. You know, because it makes for unique characters, but you know, memorable characters, ones that people want to follow because it's fun. And and we all have friends that have that. Look, they're Easter eggs. My my books are festooned with them. You know, where where my friends will read it and they'll be like, "Were you making fun out of Chris here, or were you? you was this really?" The, and it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, you like, and, and it's because, but it makes it believable because the characters aren't static. They're not generic. They're they have human elements to them uh, that make them real. And so you, it's like, okay, well, this person's flawed, but everybody's flawed. And there's a way for us to, you know, to identify with them. And so I'm going to cheer for this character, even though they might be an underdog, or I might cheer for this character because I like something, I, I see, you know, something about me in them. There's a familiarity that's there. Uh, and that's the realness that you bake into um, a fantasy novel to keep people, you know, Along while also, like you said, giving you, you know, uh, like poetic license to make the realm whatever you want to make it and, and cheat whatever I want to, because I'm really the only one that knows all the rules to it. So, you know, I have, you know, varying things like there, there are various religions uh, that I've you know, kind of created, some of which are born from real life religions. Uh, others are, are just religions I've made up, you know, because they're following a, a, you know, a certain uh, God or goddess, whatever it might be. Um, and, and I think that that's. I think that's something that makes it pretty cool too. And and for me, it keeps it fun, you know, and I have a hard time doing anything without that kind of plan in place. And I respect authors that do. I mean, I know everybody knows Stephen King. So I'll use that one as an example. He is a perfect example of the opposite of me. Like he, he could sit down in a coffee shop and bang out a short story in in two hours, but sometimes he'll get stuck in the mud, not knowing where he's going. And they call them pantsers. They fly by the seat of their pants. Authors that, you know, right like that. And Stephen is probably the most famous of them all, you know, and what you'll find with his is sometimes, you know, the novels are going a certain direction and they go a different way because he didn't have that plan in place. And he often gets criticized for his endings, not matching expectations from what it started off in the beginning. And it happens there where mine never happens that way. I, I don't have the, his ability uh, to knock out stuff the way he does, you know, but I'll see something similar and then plan something around it to help have a, a more complete story at the end takes me a little longer and you know he's clearly successful at what he does i just can't write the way he he, he does and, and and others like him and i i respect them for being able for being able to do that but i also see some some flaws in in, in my my planning style and, and their and their uh, pantser style sure yeah and it's it's great to hear you speak about that because I think on, on both sides of it, you could look at it differently. So for example, you could look at the way that um, Stephen King would write maybe and see that as, uh, I don't want to say less than, but not as good as trying to plan things out or vice versa. You could see that planning things out could take longer, be a little more work and it wouldn't be as good as being able to sit down and, and knock something out. But the reason I like that you're talking about it this way is because you've acknowledged the way that you work. You've refined the way that you um uh, you know, your process and you stuck to it and you're, you become good at it because I think that it might be easy to view somebody else and see how they do it. And it's like, Oh, well, I'm not like him. So I, I must not be very good or I can only do it this way, which is, is not the best way to do it. And being able to own that, I think is also a huge, uh, important thing, even though it might be easy to compare yourself to those other people. Yeah. You know, I, I, 
You're right. Uh, and you're 100% right. Uh, I, I think that, you know, self-identity, you know, understanding what your strengths and weaknesses are. Help. Now, I'm, I try to address them. Like, I have a hard time writing small. Um, so I don't write short stories, but to challenge myself to get better at it, uh, I did a Kindlevella series that's um, set in the same realm of Warminster, but different characters, different timeline and stuff like that related. It was more of a young adult coming of age story um, uh, called The Element of Time. And um, I challenged myself to write smaller. Uh, and that's hard for someone like me that, you know, I usually my I mean, some of my chapters are six out of 8,000 words. They're very Brandon Sanderson, like, you know, but, you know, I, in order to get better at those things, but I am also self-aware, you know, and I think that that's important, not just in writing, but in, in life to, you know, get a sense of who you are and what you're good at and how you do it. And, um, I'm not saying don't challenge yourself to become better at things. If you're not, I have, and I've gotten better you know i'm not i'm not satisfied with where i am with writing small yet but um i have a tendency to write very hawthornian uh very tolkien-esque um it's it's deep it's 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 um it's heavy you're gonna find a lot of description in it but it's not full of of info dumps you know this is stuff that you see through the character's eyes which i think is important and you get their opinions on it and i want to give you enough you know, creative license as a reader to to read it on your own and decide what that character looks like. Uh, I'll never describe a character down to the toenails, right? You just give them just enough, and then that character's in their head. And I've had people come up to me at, at you know conventions and stuff and ask, you know, how do you pronounce this character's name? Uh, and I heard R. A. Salvatore, one of my favorite writers, once famous. He he said, um, "It's pronounced however you pronounce it," right? And there, there, even though that was a very direct answer to a very simple question. It's very broad. And and what he was saying was, it doesn't matter how I pronounce it. You're the reader. So pronounce it however you want. And if you want this character to look a certain way, and that only gets mucked up uh, when there's an adaptation to it. Uh, and the characters are seen from my perspective on a silver screen or in a video game or in a graphic novel. Uh, now, all of a sudden, you are putting pen to paper. But I'll tell you this. I've had a lot of folks write and do... Uh, character like they'll do fan art and give it to me at conventions or email it to me and i try to do as much as i can to promote their stuff and put it on my website and social media and things and some of that stuff is tapped dead center it's like well i couldn't have done a better job describing what this person looks like and, and they cared enough to do that and it's, it's humbling in that respect when you it's almost like a you know a police sketch artist you know and you like you describe something they come to you and say is this right and you're like yeah that's that, that's it you know and uh and, and it's fun to see that other people can crawl into your mind for a little bit and and do that stuff but i, I getting back to your original question yeah i do think that being self-aware and what you do well and what your what process it takes to get to where you want to go is important so that you don't get writer's block or you don't lose interest in writing and then go sits in a drawer for a couple of years uh, before you get the, the urge to do it again and that's why I think my habits help me continue to hit my goals and my publisher's goals, you know, as, as part of this too. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I definitely think that, uh, uh, that's a good answer to the question. And I think that, as you said, it's not only good for you and your writing, but I think it's a good skill for anyone to develop in life, being self-aware and, and realizing how you move through the world. And, uh, you know, we talked about already, um, trying to do that world building and create that, that, uh, 
kind of character or setting or whatever it is. And, and even hear you to talk about fans that have come up and because you did such a good job, it's a whole other layer to it where you're not only trying to create them, but you're trying to create something that someone can picture and then you're creating it so well that they can actually turn it into reality, which is another skill that can be developed. And so, you know, aspiring authors out there that are trying to find their voice and build these worlds, you know, that can be a huge daunting task. We talked a little bit already about your writing process and kind of where that goes, but would you have any advice for someone trying to start on this writing journey and, and try, try to start creating a whole realm within this fantasy storytelling? Yeah, plenty. I have plenty of advice because I started with no direction. You know, I started uh, and luckily I had a friend who kind of coached me along and got me in touch with some people that could help me. But what I learned the hard way, hopefully through my advice, others can learn an easier way if they listen. Uh, and the first part is, is for me, I mentioned it already, which is writing every day. And I'm not saying Christmas or you're on vacation somewhere. Yeah, everybody takes off and you unplug and, and that's great. But I think making it that muscle memory, that that part where it's like, I got to do something or you expect to do it and you're disappointing yourself when you don't, that's where you need to be to keep pace professionally, to make this a career, to make this successful. Uh, you know, I think that that's what's helped me. The second part I would offer is the hardest part, which is you have to be open to constructive criticism. Uh, when I turned in my first manuscript to my editor, um, I didn't know what to expect. I thought, Hey, this is 90% there. She's going to love this. And she didn't, you know, it came back with 1100 errors. In it. Uh, and at first I took offense. Uh, and then when you learn that iron sharpens iron and she's not your enemy, she's your friend. She's trying to make a product better for you so that when it does go to market, it's, it's the best product it can be. And there are going to be holes in it. And part of those holes come from just you being too close to it. Um, you know, as a writer, sometimes you you know what the character is going to do or what they're like, but unless you've ex explained that explicitly in the novel, sometimes that, that there might be a hole there. And, and someone that hasn't read your stuff, reading it for the first time is going to come back and ask questions, and then you could fill those voids so that there aren't those holes. Um, you know, and the, the third piece I would offer is, you know, socialize it. Um, writing is a team sport. Don't just depend on you and your editor. Send it to other people that read your stuff. And I'm not talking about my mom. Like, if I gave it to my mom, of course, she's going to say, hey, Joe, that's the greatest thing you've ever written. Of course she is. She's my mom. You can't listen to your mom. <laughs> Don't take it to your mom. Let her read it after it's published. Take it to people that read in your genre. Take it to people that do, um, you know, work in this place or, or other creatives um, that will get it. And they'll come back with real legit question marks uh, that you're going to have to address before it goes out. And so, you know, my books go through a rigorous editing process. It starts with, a development editor who pokes holes at it saying there's a character flaw here or there's a there's a, a plot arc problem here and you have to fix it and then it goes through copy line editors who are telling you that you forgot this comma you know or this, you have to close the parentheses here um and then it goes back to me and then back to them and then it goes out to a handful of beta readers and beta readers are people that are exactly like i just described people that read your stuff all the time and can tell you what's contemporary What's, you know, you're missing some things that you, you might want to put in there, what they like, what they don't like. And I liken that to, you know, an audience preview of a movie where they've got three sets of, of film movie uh, theaters and they show three different endings to the movie. And they, they, they say, which one do you like the best? And the one that like the best miraculously becomes the end of the movie. Um, that's the kind of stuff you're getting out of your beta readers. 
Then it comes back to you one final time and it goes to your publisher. And at that point, you've seen the 10 to 12 sets of eyes that are out there from people that know what they're doing. They know what they're talking about. They understand your genre and they're going to be honest about your product and they're trying to make it better. And then you're so grateful when that's over, but you just have to develop a thick skin uh, and just be like, okay, well, what am I doing wrong? What am I missing? Because you will miss it. It's not perfect. Do not edit your own work. Uh, and I think those are the three points that I would offer to any aspiring author. So write every day or at least outline, do something every day to keep momentum with you're doing, you know, do not be afraid to, uh, you know, do when you go through the editing process to share and take constructive criticism, you know, and then, you know, thirdly, make sure it gets out to people that understand what it is that you're, that you're writing. You know, if I don't read horror and you're asking me to read a horror novel, I might not know what's good or bad, but if I read it all the time, uh, then I think those are the kind of people you want to get in front of. Cause those are the readers. Like when I first started to sell my books, I was trying to sell it to family and friends. They're not my readership. They're not going to be the ones that they'll might buy the first one, but after that they're done. You know, you want to find people that read your stuff and sell to them because they're going to come back and back and back. And, and that's the kind of beta reader you need to tell you that they like it or they don't. Absolutely. Yeah. Great advice. I think anyone listening could definitely uh, benefit from that. And so moving on, uh, still within the realm that you've created, but you're starting to do other things. As you mentioned, you have uh, the video game coming up and you're starting to do graphic novels and stuff like that. And, and kind of maybe walk us through how you were able to turn what you created from the page into much more than that. And, and what that process kind of looked like. Yeah. So, you know, the, the video game thing came, out of the blue. Uh, usually when you talk to someone who's written a book, everyone asks the same question is when's it going to become a movie, like that kind of stuff. And that's what you think of. You never think when it's going to become a video game. <laughs> like at least I didn't. And uh, as a gamer myself, um, that was an honor that someone would approach me and think that my, my product was visual enough and descriptive enough that they could create, you know, that same stuff out of it. Right now, video game storyboarding is a lot different than writing a novel. You know, it's not always going to be the same and you've got to have action all the time to keep people interested in the game. There is a story behind it. And I've been part of that process from the sideline, but watching it be adapted to a different medium has been fun, exhilarating, all the things you would think it would be because you get a chance to see what the characters look like that are developing and you want to make sure that they align with the story. And then not everything in the story can fit into a video game. So as part of the storyboarding process, there are challenges and quests and things that the that your avatars are going to go off and do um, that might not necessarily have been in the books, but it's okay. You know what I mean? It's not the books. They're not reading the books, but it's enough that you hope that you get people through the licensor, uh, the licensing of your intellectual property to this different forum uh, that they now come back and buy the books later because they want to learn what really happened. But they get a chance to see some of that visually as opposed to imaginatively by reading the novels. And, you know, and that's been, I think the the most fun, but also the most challenging because you, you don't want to kill your own darlings, uh, which is sometimes, you know, your favorite characters or your favorite scenes get written out of the video game or it's too much to be in a graphic novel. So they, they get pulled out because they just don't fit. And you're like, oh, I want them to be in there because it's so good. And they're popular scenes or popular characters. And they just and that's frustrating. But you just have to let it go. They'll be like, look, they know what they're doing. You know, I'm an author. I know what I'm doing on this side of the table. They're video game developers. They know what they need on their side. So let them do it. Just be here to consult and advise. And I think that that's been rewarding uh, as well as challenging um, and, and learning on the fly. It's something I was never 
I never thought I would be involved in. And it's just, it's been fun since day one. Sounds really cool. And I'm sure that working with people engaging in that world too is interesting for you because you can see, like you said, how they imagine some of your characters, how they would kind of tell different stories within that realm and kind of take what you started and, and, and run with it. So I imagine that's really cool to see as much as it is challenging and much as, you know, sometimes they take away things that you really like or they add things that you hadn't thought of. I'm sure that's really awesome to be able to see them also engage with the world you've created in a way that, um, can can show you that they really care about it. They really love and and I bet that's a great feeling to know they care about that world as much as as you have in in the process of creating it. Yeah, and to see some of the new stuff they've put together is it's exhilarating for me. It's like, oh wow, why didn't I think of that, right? Or there there are times where it's it's tough. You know, you got your favorite characters and they all, you know, lo and behold, they become part of the video game that the that the players are going to have to go out and beat up. Right. And you're like, no, I don't want them to be, you know, but it, it happens. Right. Or they can do things that don't align necessarily with the novels. And that's OK. They have freedom to do that in this new medium. So, like, you don't have to do everything that the novels did. That would kind of be boring. So, and this this gives you an option to do a variety of things. And the way this game is set up too, when it launches, at least the first piece of it will be augmented reality. Uh, and that'll come out in late 2024. The virtual reality game will come out in late 2025. But that AR piece a lot of that is very Pokemon Go-ish. So folks that have ever played the game, um, you know, they'll be able to do stuff on their phone, um, not just on their their laptops or other gaming system. They'll be able to do stuff out in the wild and take challenges in the wild. And, and as they, you know, win the quests and solve the riddles and things, they'll be rewarded with stuff they can use in the real world. So, you know, you slay the dragon and you pick up his treasure and your character levels up, but also you open a scroll and you find out you've got a five dollars off a subway sub or a buy one get one at subway uh, or, or a starbucks and, and it's those sponsorship ideas that beget additional you know dollars to the, to the game and other attention and you can use some stuff in the real world or you can trade it uh and i think people will start talking about that and i think that that is fun to me too even though there's no starbucks in my realm of warminster there might be one in the game so you know hey whoever sponsors sponsors right i got used to that over the years too like i, I played like nhl um you know, to, you know, 2023, uh, you know, PlayStation and, um, you know, the Bowers is, uh, you know, they've got the skates or Coho has got the sticks. And so you see that stuff already added in. This makes it live. Like you can actually take it somewhere, put it in your e-wallet and go get a discount at a restaurant or, or a bar or a sporting goods store somewhere. So it's lot, that, that part is, it brings the businessman back in me where like, like it's just before it was like the creative. Now it's like, oh, I get this. How do we, how do we monetize this? Uh, uh, and, yeah. and and that that makes it a lot of fun too. That definitely sounds novel. I I, I don't I don't know of many um, video games or really anything of that type. So it sounds like it's gonna be really kind of revolutionary and really exciting to see what comes from that. And I'm glad you brought up um, kind of the business side because my next question for you is: when you're doing all this, you have your structure for for uh, reading, you have your family, you have your friends, you have your hobbies and, and games and stuff like that. Do you find it difficult or how do you best kind of balance all of that? Because I'm sure there's been times when you're sitting down with, with your family and you have an idea and I'm sure the first thing you want to do is go kind of run with that idea, but you're also, you know, with your family. And so how do you kind of balance everything that's going on with, within your life? I think that um, you just have to put up walls. Right. Um, there's times when you're with your family, times when you're out. And even if an idea strikes you, you can always with with phones these days, you take a note, dictate it while you're driving, 
yeah, I even have, you know, uh, you know, I'm just like basically a, a sketchbook in my car that I, I'll grab if I need to make notes on, on something. So I don't forget about going back and addressing it later. And then you just build it out. But I think from a, from a good work-life balance situation, it's really important that you put up walls there. So you're not always sitting in front of your computer, you know, and your wife comes up to you and like looks over the top of your, your screen and is like, what do you, I'm here. Can you talk to me? You know what I mean? Don't, don't look at your screen. I'm, I'm real. That's fake. You know? And I, so you, I think those things are really healthy uh, as well as um, in the beginning as an author, you're not going to make any money. Uh, it's a hard, it's a hard way to do it. Like people will go out and they'll put their body, soul, blood, sweat, and tears into a novel. And it could be great. Uh, and they might sell 50 books. They might sell 200 books. You know what I mean? And to put it into perspective, you know, if to be in the top 10% of author sales in any given year, you have, you have to sell a thousand books, right? That's, that's, it doesn't sound like a lot. Try selling 500 books, right? It's just, it, especially when no one knows who you are, they've never read your stuff. Um, and it's just, it, you've got to get over the hump where you're building your readership. So you've got to go in and I look at it, I liken it very much to being an entrepreneur. In fact, the way I look at it for myself is, you know, I am the product and my books are my brand, right? And so it, as an, a business owner myself, I try, I'm not commoditize it, that's not the right word, but I try to uh, you know, look at it through the eyes of a business person. How do I sell the most amount of books? And it's not about being an Amazon bestseller. But it is right. Like you, you want to have those you know, those wins incrementally getting to the New York Times bestseller. That's where you want to land. So you have to have a business plan in place. You have to market yourself. And in order to do that, that's very expensive. And it's hard to bring people on to do that stuff for you. So many authors in the beginning lean on themselves to do that. They create their own social media accounts. They're out there literally pushing their wares every day, you know, two, three times a day on those devices, making sure that because it's free. Right, you can't take out a billboard. You can't walk into a Barnes and Noble and immediately start selling your stuff. They got to. has to be a hook uh, to what you're doing. And some publishers can get you in and do that, but your publishers are not your publicists. You know, you've got to. There's a line between the two. You know, the publisher's job is to get your book on a shelf. Period. Your job is to promote yourself. Unless you're, like I mentioned before, Stephen King or some of the big. You're going to have, you know, publicists that can do that for you and help you do those things. But in the beginning. It's just like investing in a business. I'm going to put a bunch of time in and there's time value of money that's there uh, that you're expending to and and the blood, sweat and tears to write and put a good product out. Your novels, they, it has to be good or people aren't going to come back and then promotion. Right. And it takes a while to, to build that momentum to get to where you want to be. And so I encourage authors to look at it from the, the eyes of a business person you know, take a, take a step back and say, okay, I've got this great thing. And if you're doing it just for the art of it and you don't care, and you're just going to give it away to your family for Christmas and you don't care how many people buy it and read it. Great. Excellent. But if you want to make this a career and it's going to feed you and your family in some way, shape or form, whether it's a side hustle or the mainstream of money that's coming in, you got to look at it as a business and it's about how much money you're going to get for the product that you're selling. And you might have to spend a little or make a little. Absolutely. Yeah. Good advice. And I like that, you know, that started off by putting those walls up and making those boundaries, which can be important, but also realizing that you're going to get, well, 
to, to not ever extend, but you're going to get what you put into it. So the more time you and, and effort you invest into it, the, the more things are going to come from it. And you just kind of have to do that work sometimes. So um, I know that speaking of extra work, you also have a podcast. You've been on several other podcasts and it's really cool to see that because I know that it's not just you um, doing it because it's what you're supposed to do, but because you're involved in so many projects between books and video games, podcasts and videos, stuff like that, that, that you genuinely care about it too. And that's been kind of prevalent to me through all of it is that you're definitely not doing this just to do it, just to do it, to make money. Cause as we talked about, it doesn't always uh, start. It's not a huge money maker necessarily, but you do really care about it. And so I think that's another key component to it is that, um, if your heart isn't in it to, uh, any degree or to a large degree, I think that it's going to be a tough road, especially if you don't care about what's going on too. Yeah, I think it, it, I ha- you look at it from an industry perspective, and, and I own a, a small online e-magazine called Altered Reality, and uh, it's there for exactly the purposes you stated. In many instances, it's, it's the first portal to publication for authors and poets of speculative fiction. Uh, you know, it's the first time they've ever been published. They can see something in one of our quarterly mags, or they'll see it online in perpetuity. You know, is one of our monthly submissions. And we have, you know, authors that have been around for 20 years that are award winning all the way down to the first time I submitted something. But if it's worthy and publishable, we get it out there. We do that. And so part of that was to create a, um, a portal uh, for that publication and for the love of the game. Right. And so we were doing it. It, was, it wasn't to make money. We have a couple of sponsors, but it's, that just offsets the cost of, of doing some of the stuff. I'm not making money at it. But, you know, when I, you mentioned the podcast, I started the realm. Uh, which was originally a, a YouTube channel, which now has expanded into a blog talk radio show. Uh, I bring on creatives of all shapes and sizes uh, to do exactly that. I'd help them get some exposure. Um, sure, it helps me and 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 my stuff too because they're going to push me out to um, their followers and vice versa. It's a cross marketing that's part of it, and it's really important for both of us. But at this, by the same token, you know, I don't charge anybody to come on my show. I don't charge anybody to to submit something to my magazine. I do it because I'm trying to promote the industry around it because this is important to a lot of people. And, and it's not just escapism and entertainment. In many instances, it's, it's, it's people that are trying to make a living at this stuff and a little exposure here or there for, for them that I wish I had in the beginning, I think is, is will be helpful to them and set them down the right. And I, I always try to be a, a gracious host. Uh, you know, I don't ask, my questions. I don't put them on the spot. I try to, you know, even to some degree script something that I know they're, they're going to be able to, to answer and answer well, because in many instances, this is the first time they've had that exposure. And they, you know, and it's sometimes easier to do it on a phone where you're not looking at a camera like this. And other times, you know, it, it especially generationally, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, they're going to just be looking at the videos, right? And so you've got short form, you've got long form, things that you've got to do. Uh, as part of that, they're not going to come to my site and read someone's stuff. They want to hear you say it. And so I offer them the ability to read their poetry online so people can hear it. And then they might go out and buy something or, you know, read a chapter as part of their stuff to give them uh, an opportunity to to promote their stuff so people can hear it or or, or see it. And then they're like, all right, I'll, I'll go buy that. I'll go check that out right now, right after the show's over. You know, and so I think those, I think those portals. Uh, help me help them and help the industry. So I don't, I don't mind being part of it. And I think it's, you know, more people should, uh, you know, be, be involved in, in those kind of activities. And it doesn't always have to be for money. It can always, you know, sometimes it could be for the, for the love of the game. Absolutely. 
Many listeners will, will be eager to hear about your future projects, I know for a fact. Are there any tantalizing teasers you can offer us about what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, so just in brief, uh, the fourth book, the final book in the Warminster Saga, which will be called Echoes of Ghostwood, is going to re- be released at the end of quarter one of 2024. Uh, it is the epic ending to an epic saga. Uh, it was a tough one to write because some of the things in there I didn't want to write, but it makes for a really good story. Uh, and I'm excited about that um, as, as uh, the next thing to come out. And then beyond that, I have a couple of spinoffs uh, that I have. I've, I've gotten encouragement from my readership, excuse me, um, to uh, give some origin stories to some of the more popular characters. And so end of next year, there'll be another origin story for or, uh, the first origin story for for one of the villains in Canis Truwaith uh, that will come out uh, called The Black Rose. Uh, date hasn't been set for that yet, but that the launch of that and a few others around that for some of the more popular characters will give me enough time to really deep, dive deep into the next uh, uh, follow-up series that'll come from uh, the Warminster saga and the follow-up on some of your favorite characters and things like that. So that's that's in the pipeline as well, as you mentioned before, the video game and the graphic novel. We're trying to find a house for it right now, and uh, that's been another learning process as we go. So Lots of fun things on the way, and uh, you know, I again, I appreciate you guys having me on the show today to to chat about them and and uh, let people uh, have a little bit of a peek behind the curtain to what JV Hilliard's doing. Very exciting, yeah, yeah. Thank you, JV, for taking us on a journey through your captivating world of fantasy and creativity. Your insights into writing, gaming, and that fusion of storytelling kind of, you know, it's been really, really enlightening. Um, before we wrap up here, do you have any final thoughts or key takeaways to share with our audience? Um, just a friendly, you know, if you're, if you liked what you heard and you're interested in what I write, check out www.jvhilliard.com, uh, or you can Google my books are available ubiquitously. So if you like, uh, audio books, you can find them on audible and other places that do audio, uh, distribution. If you like the e-reader stuff, you can find it on yeah, dragonmoonpress.com, go to Amazon, go to Barnes and Noble, you'll find it there. Uh, and of course, I'm really easy to find on social media. If you have any questions, I try to respond to everybody within 24 hours. JV Hilliard Books is where you'll find me on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and um, uh, what's the other one? Oh, I'm missing one in there. Uh, and then JV Hilliard on Facebook and Discord. I know I'm missing one. What's the obvious one? I'm, oh, Twitter slash X, whatever it's called yeah, now. There you go. So at JV Hilliard Books or JV Hilliard, you'll find me there. Yes, sir. That's a wrap for today's episode of the Proceeds Initiative. A big thank you again to JV for joining us. And if you found this episode valuable, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing it with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, make every day count.